Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Welcome back to the Autism Helper Podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to bring my interview with Lois Letchford. We talk all things literacy, and I honestly could have chatted with her for like two hours because she is an absolute wealth of knowledge. Lois is a literacy expert and an author of the best-selling book, Reversed, a memoir. She currently coaches reluctant readers and struggling readers. She has a lot of great examples from students she's worked with, from her own life, from her son. And oh my gosh, so many actionable ideas, but also so many big picture mindset shifts that I think we as educators and as parents really need to consider when it comes to how we are teaching reading. So let's go ahead and hear from Lois. Hi, Lois. Thank you so much for joining me. Hello, Sasha. I am delighted to be here and share my story and my expertise with you. Well, we're excited to hear because I love talking about literacy and reading. And I think, honestly, this is something that people aren't talking enough about because once we can get our kids reading and excited about reading, to me, it's just a game changer. I totally agree with you. And you said the words then, not only reading, but excited about reading. Yes. Because that's where the growth happens. The growth doesn't happen from reading the same text again and again and again. And so many of our kids, you know, are struggling with this in special needs classrooms, but in gen ed classrooms as well. And I think, you know, especially after COVID and virtual instruction, when so many kids lost out on, you know, months or years of meaningful instruction, they're now just left behind. Yes. 
Yes. And, and once you're left behind, you need something to push you. You need some help to go from left behind to grade level and above. Yeah. And what do you see? I mean, what do you see that that is that's motivating students that are that are really reluctant and struggling? Uh, is that another question? I mean, yeah, that's a that's a huge question, right? What's the magic magic wand trick here to get us started? <laughs> what's the magic What's the magic wand trick? <laughs> Do you know what it is? Oh, I'd love to know. Curiosity. Oh. Tapping into a child's curiosity. That's great. Because reading's how you figure out the answers to things. Yes. And when you've tapped into the curiosity and you've got the answers or you need more answers, there's never an end to answers, those letters and sounds become critically important. So you're giving a child a reason why to learn the letters and sounds. You're not just saying you have to learn it and you have to do this. You're saying, ah, this is why. And can Mm. I tell you something else about curiosity? Yes. There's one of my favourite books that most people won't have read and it's called Why by Ian Leslie. I forget whether it's Why by Ian Leslie or Curious by Mario Lovio. And in it they look at MRIs and MRIs particularly of the brain. And I, I think it's Mario Lovio in his book and he says... Taking an MRI of the brain is like taking a slice of an MRI of the ocean. You can only take one slice of it and another slice and and then you assume from there. But you can't actually do that with the ocean or with the brain. And he said curiosity changes the brain and curiosity propagates in the brain in untold ways. Wow. Wow. And I love that because that's exactly what happened to my son when he was learning to read. And, you know, the brain has like, I don't know, millions of networks. And just to have it propagate, to have it change, to have these connections come about in ways that are unexpected changes the outcome for our children. Yeah, I can totally, I can totally see that. And and how if we could apply that idea of getting to that curiosity piece to, you know, within both special ed and gen ed classrooms, how that can really be that huge motivator for kids that are feeling really down on themselves, as I'm sure many kids do when they're significantly behind. Yes. So thinking about those, it's, it's, you know, the, oh, go ahead. No, no, it's a real challenge to be able to do that. But that is the challenge. How do we do it? Because, you know, this is one of the questions you sent me. What are some of the biggest mistakes educators make when kids, when teaching kids how to read? And the first one, the first mistake that we make is that we forget about engagement. A Mm. child's engagement in literacy and literacy instruction is critical. And if we don't tap into that, everything else we do is a waste of time. So what are some practical or actionable ways that you see teachers tapping into that engagement piece within their literacy instruction? There is no one answer. Yeah. (laughs) You cannot say this text is going to work. What you can do 
is try. And this is where, you know, teaching is a game and an art as well as a science that we are required as teachers to pull our students along mm-hmm. and also to push them. And you pull them along by reading things that helps their eyes sparkle. Yeah. And that's a critical component. And when you see something that you've read fall flat, you say, well, it didn't work. The next thing you do is keep going until you get that sparkle. And when you get it, that's when the game changing happens. Yeah. You know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was teaching a child. He was autistic. He was in, you know, at the end of elementary school going into middle school. He couldn't read. He couldn't read a thing, which is why I was called in. I became a literacy expert teaching kids who'd failed everything. Couldn't read anything. So my task is to teach him one-on-one because there were some legal issues happening around this child. So I said to the mother, "Uh, look, I've got this lesson. I've got a box lesson which has got some things in the the box that might help and then we've got this other lesson. So one, we're giving him choice. Which one do you want to do first? So choice Mm -hmm. became important. And then once I hear, and he went for the box lesson that I had because you're tapping into their curiosity immediately. And then I started to do a few other exercises with him. And eventually this boy who was not reading when I first picked him up wanted to read Harry Potter. Wow. And then it's not only reading Harry Potter, but I said, let's record it so you can listen to it. So here's the push and pull. You're not only reading it with and for them and them reading it independently, but you're giving them a real purpose for reading and writing. If you record it, why are you doing this? Uh, Was that recording good enough? Can we reread it? Hey, you know, you've got a couple of words wrong here. Uh, Would you like to get them right as we record it again? And that becomes a game changer. It's offering a real purpose for reading and writing. Really embedding that why into the instruction. Yes. Yes, And I think that's a struggle with a lot of our kids on what's the point of this? You know, why am I doing this? And if they can't see that, of course, why are they going to want to do it? Yeah, and that's exactly what was happening with this little boy because I did not teach him all the letters and sounds required in that four to five months that he went from nothing to Harry Potter. But once you start to give them the why, all the teaching that's been done in the past then starts to come together and make sense and gives him a reason to say, now I can use these tools that you've given me. Now I know why I'm doing it. Ah, let's put it all together. It worked. It, yeah. was, it was astounding to watch his growth and to watch his love of learning grow as he learned to read. Yeah, that's so amazing. And I mean, to Harry Potter, look at that. Yes, yes. As, as you were kind of saying that story before, I was thinking about a client I had very similar. And same thing that you said, the why, the engagement. He was exiting junior high, very little, little, little literacy skills. Teachers had just not figured him out at all. He was in a great school. Teachers loved him. They couldn't t- figure out how to teach him how to read. He was nonverbal. And once literacy really clicked and he was really motivated was once he got a cell phone. He wanted to text. He wanted a Snapchat. He wanted to email. And 
suddenly kind of same thing you said, all of those lessons he had had for years and years kind of came together because he wanted to be able to utilize that cell phone like his teenage sisters and you needed to know how to write. And it, it was cool. Same thing. Kind of cool to watch that like, oh, wow, this all came together right now because the why is here and That's, it's right in front of you. Yes. Yeah. The why is a game changer. And, you know, when you're doing a standardized reading program, no one's asking, no teacher is asking, how is this working for my students? Mm-hmm. And, and that's what you have to do. And particularly for those who are on a, have been given a label, you know, whether is it autistic or dyslexic, those children in particular need to see how it works. Yeah. Is that, do you think that's one of the biggest struggles with those like traditional reading instruction programs where it's more standardized, you know, there's more of a script that it, that it doesn't hit on that why or that engagement piece? That's one of the reasons. What are, what are some other struggles with, that are, that our students are facing with that type of instruction? <sighs> big, big, huge ones. The jumps are too big. Mm-hmm. The jumps they make are far too big. They make the writers of the program make far too many assumptions about a child's background knowledge of words and language. That is huge. They tend to think if a child reads the words, therefore they have all the comprehension of the, the sentence or the paragraph, and that's a fallacy. Yeah. They read the words, does not equal comprehension. And I think the other huge problem, and what I do significantly is that decoding and comprehension are codependent and interdependent. They are not separate entities that we can teach in isolation. They work together and we have to recognise that. And it's particularly important because um, comprehension, comprehension is so challenging. And that when you read a sentence, inference is often not recognised, that the words are not often in their child's oral language. So we're teaching them words that are outside of their oral language and they don't have a clue what it means. And the big one for autistic and dyslexic children is that words have multiple meaning. And we make an assumption that if children read the words, they will have the concrete and the abstract meanings together and they don't. I'll give you an example. Now, I've said I teach children who failed all reading programs, and one of the very first things I do with students is ask them to read the word T-O, and they'll read it, and they'll read the word F-O-R, and I write them on a piece of paper in front of me and say, read this word, two and four, get it right. Now give me a sentence with two. Now, this is a sentence from a 16-year-old child who had been in a a school for dyslexic children for four years, and he said to me, I've got two lizards the same. What do you notice about that word T-O? Yeah, he's using the wrong form of the word. And he's 16 years old. Why can't this child read? Because he has no clue that the word T-O has got multiple meanings. And it's the same with the word F-O-R. He said so to me, many oh. words that are a struggle like that. My gosh, the English language is so confusing. 
Yes. And we, when we teach, we assume, we make assumptions about child knowledge rather than teaching children. This word is T-O. It means I go to school. We go to the library. We go to the shops. We go, we go to the baseball game. And T-W-O is the number. I always teach the concrete before the abstract. Mm-hmm. And same with F-O-R. Exact. And once these students not only see the word and get the comprehension and then read sentences about it, you come to a book, then they can read it. They go, ah, ah, now I get it. Now I get it. And that's where I start. And that's an assumption that teachers and writers often make. Oh, you should know that. They should know that. They don't. Yeah. We have made an assumption about a child's background knowledge. And I definitely agree with what you said on, on reading words that are not even in their oral language yet. So, yeah, we don't have that any context to pull from, that background to pull from. And so many learners that I see have way higher reading fluency than they have reading comprehension. So they sound like they know what they're talking about, but that comprehension sometimes is almost at zero. So it's, it's kind of like, well, what's the point? You know, we, if we're not comprehending the text, what are we doing? Exactly. And, you know, particularly where now we've had this push towards decoding, you know, there's a lot of words that have got a short vowel in them uh, that are used that children have never used. Nip. Um, Now I don't have these words off and I'm thinking of a word like bran Mm -hmm. or um, tuck. You know, they're words that are easy to read. Mm-hmm. but they've never used them in their oral language. Yeah, I know. How often are we saying those words? How, how often? That's the big question. <laughs> how, and, and again, we haven't recognised that the, the big connection for literacy is the, the challenge between the oral language and the written language. That has always been a frustration to me as a teacher and now as a parent being on the other end of it. When you see, you know, worksheets and activities, my daughter was doing this recently, and the word was pale like a bucket. And I was like, yes. she's literally never said the word pale. Like she calls it a bucket. Yes. Everyone calls it a bucket. Yes. But you're right. You know, that then we're using words that are not in our kids' background knowledge. Yes. And then where's that connection? Going back to what we started talking about. There's no why in it. And then children find it acceptable to then read words without comprehension because the teacher has praised the reading of words. True. Yeah. And I... I have a student who right now she's nine and we're reading frog and toad and it said walk across a meadow walk in the wood and along the river you know the story of frog and toad and the lost button and and she started yawning (laughs) (laughs) which is uh you know sign number one there's a problem and I said well what's the problem here what's a meadow and she said I don't know. Yeah. Again, it's a word that is not in their child's oral language. We don't use meadows in America. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a field, isn't it? Or a paddock or a yard, depending on where you are in your circumstances. What do people in the city use? I don't know. It might be a park. Yeah. And without recognition that, A, the meadow caused the problem and then why would you walk across it? and not around it, is a second question. Language is abstract. And that causes children who think concretely very, a a lot, huge difficulties 
which we don't acknowledge. So the concrete words are easier to learn than the abstract words. Most of the sight words are abstract. They are pronouns. They are prepositions. They are verbs um, and past and present tense verbs. They throw our children. Mm -hmm. And yet the way we teach them changes the outcomes. And we tend to teach those first. So we're like losing kids right off the bat, especially if they're that super concrete thinker. Totally agree with you. Totally agree. Do you think that's why a lot of learners with autism, you know, just a broad generalization, struggle with reading because many, you know, individuals with autism are more concrete thinkers. And like you said, yeah, language is super abstract. Do you think that disconnect right there causes a lot of the struggle? Yes. Yes. That's your first struggle. The second struggle is just what we said before, the words that are not in their, they're reading words that are not in their oral language. Now that throws even more confusion on the first confusion and then as they expand their vocabulary, everyone's happy that they're reading words and we're not interested in the comprehension piece. I, you know, I wrote a lot of my material for my struggling readers and I have this very simple poem and it uses the word the cat, the hat, the rat and the bat, you know, the rhyming words. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, the cat in a hat on a mat with a rat and a bat. Well, fancy that. Well, that is just not possible. There might be one scratch cat, no rat or bat, and one messy mat. Now, what's the problem with such a simple problem, with such a simple poem? It's got all the rhyming words. Why is it so difficult? What's going on? What are your thoughts? (laughs) <laughs> I'm trying to follow it. <laughs> exactly. Well, the first is, you know, you've got a cat in a hat on a mat. Although we've said the cat is comes first, when you actually come to act it out, what's happening? The mat goes on the floor first. Yeah. Then the hat goes on the floor and then the cat goes in it. So the way we're saying it and the way we're visualising it are two different things. Yeah, I was struggling to visualize it, you know, listening. Uh, listening because there are so many rhyming words that you have to slow it down and create that picture. I don't create the picture first. I get them to act it out. Mm-hmm. And I say, who wants to be a cat? Who wants to be a rat? And who wants to be a bat? Then you go back to the beginning. You know, the cat in the hat on a mat. So we've got now a picture of the hat with the rat and a bat. So now we've got a cat, a rat, and a bat in a hat. And the next line is, well, fancy that. Now that's a scene, that's a more complicated one, isn't it? Well, fancy that because that doesn't actually have a meaning and you've got to know what that is about and that's all these three animals in a hat. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that is just not possible. So, And this is where my students get confused and I say to them, you've got three animals in a hat. What would they do? And the moment you say that, the children go, ah, they would fight. (laughs) And then the last line is, well, there's no, there's one scratch cat, no rat. What's happened to the rat? The rat's dead. Or bat. What's happened to the bat? The bat's dead. And one messy mat. Once you've acted it out, the comprehension is a game changer. 
because even with the simplest of poems, you have inference. Yeah. Literacy is tough. It's high level. It's complex. We can't let anything go. We have to teach every single step for our most challenged readers. I like that example, how you really, you know, even in our quick conversation here, but, you know, meticulously went through every line. Like you said, we can't let anything go. What what does that mean? Not assume that they know that that's referring to the previous sentence and the three animals. And and I think about a lot of instruction in, in typical class, in gen ed classrooms and special classrooms that it's rushed. We're not taking that time to go into so much detail because there is this pressure to like get back on grade level or keep, keep up or move ahead. But we're, we're doing our kids a disservice by pushing them forward too quickly. Exactly. Totally agree. Uh, yes, totally, totally agree. And, you know, from that point, I've got another component. And this is my little bugbear. I read a book to my students and I wish we were on video, but we aren't. And it's called Aha, Said Stork by Gerald Rogers and it was published in the 1980s and it's written for a child who is 12 months old. And the story goes, Aha, Said Stork. Uh, Aha, Said Stork. Let me get the book if I can find it. Yes, here it is. I've forgotten the first line off the top of my head for the moment, which is what I do. Aha, Said Stork. Ah, Said Stork. I will eat this egg. He pecked at it, but it would not break. And the picture is a double-page spread of a stork trying to peck at an egg. He pecked at it, but it would not break. And the next page is a double-page spread of a hippopotamus. And it said, hippopotamus rolled on it. And then lion bit it. And chimp hit it. And elephant stamped on it. And the book goes on and on and on and on. When I first used this book with some third graders, eight years old. I got to the end of the book and I said to my students, and what's the it? My three students sat in front of me and they said to me so innocently, it, it is nothing. Wow. Why are we rushing? And it's only when I went back to the beginning of the book and I said, well, you know that it there, that's that's an interesting word, isn't it? How about we act it out? The moment you act it out, it goes from something abstract to concrete. And they, oh, it's an egg. Yeah, it's <laughs> an egg. And then you go through the whole book. Hippopotamus rolled on the egg. Lion bit the egg. Chimp hit the... And then the next step you've got to do is make sure that when they come to the next book that they are actually taking the reference or the antecedent of the word it and not the concrete noun, the egg. Yeah. So, again, you teach them with another book and say, well, what's the it now? And you're teaching children to think as you teach them to read because reading is thinking. And starting with the comprehension right away as opposed to like, oh, you read the book so nicely and fluently, but you didn't know it was, you didn't know that it was about an egg. Yeah, and you're teaching much more 
than decoding words. And the moment you're teaching comprehension along with decoding, you're giving the decoding value. You're giving the decoding more value because the letter order counts. Yeah. And you can't just use any word. You're using that word there. And you'll watch children change the words until they become more confident and comfortable with them and comfortable with the decoding of the word because we're going back to is that word in their oral language or have they substituted something else until they become familiar with the word that's written on paper. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's a great example. I mean, think about how often the word it is used in even, yeah, like you said, the most simple of stories and that it might just be purely going over students' heads. It, 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 uh, you know, this is, goes back to my story. I grew up an undiagnosed dyslexic person. I learned to read words without any comprehension and everyone was happy. But I felt like reading was wading through mud and I tried and tried and tried my absolute hardest to read and I would come up with if the, at the absolute most a stick figure for a book, any book. And so when I went to teaching, I started to look at why was it so hard for me? And that was one of the reasons, is that words like it, and I vividly remember a teacher saying to me, it, it's one of those words you just have to learn, <laughs> as opposed to, hey, let's show these children how the written language works. Show these children how the oral language works, because if you said to a child, look, you've dropped it, you've dropped your hat, pick it up, they would know exactly what to do because it's concrete, because they can physically do it. Mm-hmm. And we've got to take that knowledge of doing something in a real world to the book world. Yeah, that's great. And tying it back to what you started talking about, like the curiosity and engagement, I can imagine probably for you and then for many struggling readers, if you go through years and years of reading instruction where you're not comprehending anything or minimally, what, there's there's so little opportunity to have it be fun or interesting or something that you're curious about because you don't know what it is about, right? Like you don't even have that opportunity to get the why and the reinforcement embedded into that activity. I totally agree with you. I'm just sitting here nodding my head. Because, <laughs> you know, it, 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 and it's an embarrassment, yeah. It's, you know, it, the, 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 okay, another component of literacy instruction that is 100% ignored is that emotions in learning change the brain so that if we are disinterested in it, we're limiting brain growth. When you're excited about learning, you're changing the brain. And there's been a lot of research on it, and I can give you the names. One that sticks out to me is uh, Mary Helen in Morden O'Yang on her work on emotions and learning. And Plato knew 2,000 years ago that emotions are connected with learning. When kids are in pain and they're learning, when they're going to school in tears or coming home in tears, we're actually detracting from their learning. And, in fact, we're not into learning. We're into negative space if like the process is aversive and we're scared or, you know, feeling ashamed, it's going to have that negative reaction. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and, you know, to get back to normal, 
I and I teach these kids. I teach kids who would want, a, you know, they would rather have an earthquake between me and them than cross the floor between the door and me, <laughs> because they are so embarrassed and so humiliated that they are whatever age they are, 10, 11, 12, and can't read. And yet for me to take them and say, you know, this is okay, this is okay, you and I are going to have some fun together and to yeah. let them relax and when they don't get it right, you know, it's all right, yeah, it's fine. And let's work out how we'll do this together, which is why I spend a lot of time turning books into plays. That's my first strategy for teachers, turn a book into a drama or a play or a reader's theatre because it takes language from being abstract and irrelevant to real world and relevant. Mm. I love that. Do kids get, and then you can kind of incorporate like you've been talking about that, like acting something out because you're going to be able to see what what's actually happening versus having to envision it yourself. Yes. And what I noticed when I was teaching, I was teaching in a class and I was reading this book to the kids the skilled readers come out with Rembrandt because you ask them, what does this mean? And they tell you, blah, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. The unskilled readers sit there and look at you and that whole description has gone right over the top of their heads and they've missed it. But once the skilled reader acts it out for the unskilled reader, we're now all on the same page. The children, everyone has gained from the knowledge of the best kids in the class. Yeah. And that's a great way to include students with limited verbal skills too. Because I think a lot of teachers are really struggling with kids with limited verbal skills on how to include them in literacy instruction because most traditional literacy programs are based on spoken language. And if our kids don't have, you know, a strong repertoire in spoken language, we're kind of like, eh, I don't know what to do. But giving those other response options, we don't have to just answer questions or write questions there's other ways to to show what to we know it. you know you've hit on another um really important component there and that is the stories that children are reading are they within a child's experience are they within a child's experience because if they're not you've remove the book world from the child's life yes we want to show children how the world works and what the world's got in it but when you're learning to read and we're dealing with young children with really limited experience experiences if they've not experienced it what we're reading about the chances are it will be lost on them and I'll give you an example I was teaching this kid who'd come up from New York City up to the country in where I live in Albany. And they're reading a book about farm animals, animals in spring. So it's got, you know, a, a sheep and a horse and a pig. Has a child from New York City experienced those things? Do they know about them? And yet we make an assumption that animals are everything that everyone knows. And we also make an assumption that they know that a, a cow has a calf, a horse has a foal, a sheep has a, a sheep has a lamb, and pigs have piglets. 
without the adequate background knowledge, we've just wasted a whole session because the child hasn't got a clue what we're talking about. And we're far better to take those kids to a farm and say, this is what a horse looks like. Let them feed the animal. Let them touch it. Let them understand there's a difference between the coat of a sheep and the coat of a cow and a horse. And that's a game changer. When we experience things, one emotion comes with it. Two, the books become alive and we make sense of it. And it's very difficult to read without experience. And once you get the experience, then you can start reading more widely. But otherwise, reading is just something that happens in a book and it's not relevant to me. We're back to why are we doing it? Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I love that. I mean, and again, like thinking about COVID, I mean, kids lost a lot of experiences that they maybe weren't going on a field trip to a farm or going grocery shopping with mom and that we need to kind of now in schools and in homes and our families, communities have those experiences again, because now it's going to lead to literacy instruction later. We have that background knowledge. Totally. And I'll tell you something else, and this is a really tough one to say. The children who struggle the most are given the worst instruction. And that comes from an academic paper. This is not just Lois Letchford talking. I read a lot academically in literacy, and that struck me as a critical component of literacy. And if you know you know my story, I don't my son failed, my second son failed first grade. And at the end of grade one, you know, he can read 10 words, he's got no strengths, he's got no spatial awareness, and Mrs. Letchford, your son has a low IQ. Well, after a year of sitting in the class and being shouted at and screamed at and you're told you can't do anything and you become aware you can't do anything, you certainly do have a low IQ. Yeah. I had the opportunity to remove him for six months and that six months became a game changer. I took him out of school. I wrote poems for him. We wrote about what we were seeing. We wrote about what we were looking at around the city. My son started asking questions I could not answer. (laughs) It was the first time I recognised this child doesn't have a low IQ. And we're learning things that you don't teach a seven-year-old, learning about things you don't. We learned about the history of world mapping. And while I'm writing about it, he's thinking about it. And because he's got low oral language skills, when he asks a question that I can't answer, I know there's been a huge amount of thinking going on into that question. That time that we had changed his world and was that was where we, we tapped into his curiosity. He learned the basics of decoding. But again, why are we decoding? Because I want to learn all these things and they're so <laughs> exciting. <laughs> Yes, tying it right back to that curiosity piece. That's what you were saying. They're like, oh, he wants to know. He's got the why. Yes. And I still remember the little eyes that were, were, you know, beams of light for just sopping up information. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, I love that. Yeah, well, that was the start of the change because if we had stayed in school, they would have given him letters and sounds of which made no sense. For years and years, <laughs> probably. <laughs> and and, and long-term, my son got a PhD in applied mathematics from Oxford University. Wow. Why are we destroying our children at six and seven? They're at the beginning of their lives when we should be enhancing them and, and treating with such tender, loving care so that they do know that they can do it and that they are smart people and they're capable of anything. So that research you mentioned about, you know, some of our most struggling readers getting the worst instruction, why does that happen? Because we got a fixed idea that you have to learn to decode and you have to do it this way. Mm. There's one way, <laughs> not not a hundred ways. Yeah. So we That's just get why. stuck on that and then it's like drill and kill and like maybe yes. quite literally. <laughs> yes, exactly. Drill and kill. Yeah. Drill and kill is, is what we do. Instead of thinking, you know, they're not getting it. They haven't got these words. We have to, I think, as a literacy specialist who teaches these kids, what else do I have to do? to teach this child to read. Yeah. They haven't engaged with that whatever example we've given. That didn't make sense. You know, what do I have to do? There's another academic paper that really shook my world and it's called Beyond the Deficit Theory and this one's written by an Australian professor, Brian Camborn, and he was Teacher of the Year way back in about 2004. His paper was published in 1990, Beyond the Deficit Theory. And in it, he said the children who failed to learn to read failed for numerous reasons. The first is that we blame the child. We say, look at their background, look at their IQ, look at this, look at that. That's why they're failing, as opposed to saying, what else do we have to do? The second thing he said was, why do children fail? Because we, they fail to engage with the examples we give. And secondly, we give inadequate examples for language that children cannot engage in. The words two and the words four are exactly what Brian Camborn talks about. We make assumptions or we haven't given an example that children understand. And when they don't understand it, we're dealing with memory. We failed to tap into their memory. Why? Because we're not thinking about the child we're thinking about us yeah that's huge I mean it's it's easier in theory you know to be like oh it's it's the kids fault it's not ours but that's not our role as educators it's to go back to what other tools do we have instead of kind of wiping our hands and walking away that's exactly right well you know I I had you know this incredibly privileged experience of teaching my son to read and, and such an exciting, exciting time in both our lives. Uh, that's what's stuck with me. So when I became a literacy specialist, I'm reading everything from the point of view of what did I do to help my son. And so much that was in the academic literature resonated with how we would have taught my son if he'd been stuck in school and what I did. Mm. 
uh, and it, it was just transformative. And to read the academic literature and know that emotions, emotions tie into memory. And it's not only the emotion of, uh, of the word, but it's the emotions around, all of the things around it. And the happier our kids are, the more it ties into memory. The sadder they are, the more scared they are, the more afraid they are, the less chances you have of memory. And, you know, and I, I'm part of this memory thing because I would say, you know, I'll remember that. I'll, I'll, I'll remember that. That'll be easy for me to remember. Come the next day and guess what? <laughs> it's gone. And then I have to go back to myself and say, why didn't I remember it? What happened? And it's simply I didn't make enough connections. Yeah. I didn't make a connection that, that allowed it to stick. You know, so when our children fail to learn something, we have to ask why. And drill and kill is not part of it. Yeah, and then the why, and then what can we do next about it instead of, you know, turning it on? Well, that this is what we have to offer and that's it. Yes. Oh, I love yeah, that. I'll give you a defense for teachers. We don't give them enough time. The work I do with my students, I, you know, I might spend an hour or with a student. I will spend, particularly in the early days of teaching them, another hour often looking through books or finding material that is adequate for that child. That's a real struggle for teachers to do. And there's so much pressure by administrators. And I know administrators get pressure from above, but, to, you know, we have state tests coming up and we have standards and grades we have to meet and we want to push everyone above so that that pressure piece in addition to the time is, is huge. And, and what for? What for? What does it gain us? Nothing. If by third grade they can't read and comprehend adequately. Yeah. And I was in Texas when the, you know, when no child was left behind and they put the standards so high at third grade. What's the point? We don't need kids to read 600 words at third grade to do one, you know, one passage. You're only going to get the, you know, the standardised answers. You're not having kids thinking, 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 thinking through it. I mean, I was just appalled at what they were doing back then. Yeah. The preschool standards and kindergarten standards still make me real sad because I'm like, the, we shouldn't be like, shouldn't be focusing on this in preschool. We're still learning how to problem solve and our social skills. And there's plenty of time for everything later. We need, like you said, the background knowledge, the oral language, the connections and all that. And I, and I feel sad for a lot of early child teachers that, you know, they're, these are the standards they're given and that's what they got to work with. And standards put out by whom, for whom, who's gaining, who's losing. Oh, my God. That's a, that's a whole other episode, Lois. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. my gosh. I, I have loved chatting with you and I, lo I really appreciated all of the examples you gave because I think it really, you know, I'm a visual learner, so it really illustrated a lot of the ideas and strategies that you shared. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I love talking about literacy. So where can people go to learn more from you? Uh, my website is www.loisletchford.com. My book is Reversed a Memoir and there's an audio version of that. And that's the story of uh, my story and my son's story. I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. 
Facebook I've given up on, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lois. It was a, a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum. Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.